Good morning. morning. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 28 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Starting in verse 1, we read, And when they had been brought safely through to shore, then we learned that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us extraordinary affection. For because of the rain that had, been, that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out be, because of the heat and fattened, fastened, fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were waiting for him to soon swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, Changing their minds, they began to say that he was a god. Now in the areas around that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying afflicted with fever and dysentery. And Paul, going to see him and having prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened... The rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and being healed. They also bestowed on us many honors of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. Now at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and after, after a day when a south wind sprang up on the second day, we came to Petoli. There, were found some brothers, there we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brothers, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, why don't we jump right in and consider the first point in our outline this morning, God's protection. As we've seen previously, King Agrippa and Festus sent Paul to Rome. In leaving Crete against Paul's advice, the ship they were on was caught in a great storm and fell off course. They completely missed the city Phoenix, their intended destination, and instead were caught in the open sea of the Adriatic for 14 days, at which point they shipwrecked on the shores of an island which they did not initially recognize. And this is where our text picks up this morning. Verse 1 reads, And when they had been brought safely through to shore, then we learned that the island was called Malta. They had shipwrecked on an island called Malta, also called Melita, which is a name given to the island by Phoenician seafarers and is a Canaanite word that means refuge. 
And Paul and the men traveling with him would, sit, would stay on Malta for three months before they would continue on to Rome. It's important to recognize that Paul and all 276 men had been brought safely through to shore. Specifically, we must recognize that it was not merely men with great skills in seafaring or amazing nautical abilities which brought them all safely through the storm and onto the shore of Malta. This phrase, had been brought safely through in the Greek, is particularly informative because it is written by Luke in what is known as the divine passive. Precept Austin explains the significance of the divine passive when he says the following. In simple terms, the divine passive refers to the use of a Greek verb in the passive voice, which in context implies or sometimes directly states that the action or effect of the verb is produced by God, most often implying the Holy Spirit. In short, the divine passive indicates that God is the doer or divine producer of an action or an effect described in the passage. The implication then is that the phrase, they had been brought safely through, is attributed wholly to God as the one who has done this. God brought Paul and all 276 men on that ship through the storm unscathed. God did this. But this should not surprise us. Not if we believe God when he says he's going to do something. In the previous chapter, God in no uncertain terms told Paul that he and all those sailing with him would make it through the storm to an island. Take a look at Acts 27 starting in verse 22. And now I advise you to be cheerful, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, be cheerful, men, For I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. This is further bolstered by the fact that Jesus himself told Paul in Acts 23, verse 11, that he would go and bear witness of Christ in Rome. Jesus said to him, Take courage, for as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. Let me just ask you, do you believe God's promises? Do you believe God's word? Do you believe unequivocally that when God says something, that he will do it? Now, in considering these questions, we must not make the mistake of falling into the errors preached by those who push the word of faith, the name it and claim it, or the prosperity gospel heresies. These heresies are rooted in the sinful desires of man to find satisfaction in the things of this world, to even love this world rather than Christ alone. But at the same time, we should be careful of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We shouldn't ignore the promises and blessings that God speaks about us. Rather, we should remember them with the understanding that those promises and blessings are the truths that we stand on in the midst of sickness, suffering, and persecution. 
Whereas the name it and claim it heretics would have you believe that you can have all your heart desires of this world and that if you have enough faith, we'll experience no sickness, no trials or persecution that you can have your best life now. Those are lies from the pit of hell. And the truth of the matter is that we are not of this world. This is not our home. We are sojourners passing through because we are going somewhere else. We are going to the celestial city, our eternal destination. And our created purpose is to enjoy God in all of His glory and worship Him in His presence forever. This life is a blip on the timeline of eternity. It is a vapor here in a moment and gone in the next. It is a light. It is light and momentary. And so the true purpose of God's word, the true purpose of what God says he will do, what he says about us, what he promises to us is to give us hope. So that as we walk through trials, we are grounded in this hope. We are grounded in the words of God. We are grounded in the sovereign work of God in the midst of our sufferings, just as we have seen Paul do throughout Acts and in our text this morning. So with all this in mind, I'd like to take a brief survey of what God says to us in His Word, what God promises as the ground of our hope for eternity. Christian, as I read these, ask yourself, do I hope in these things? Do I find the kind of hope that will take me through the suffering and persecution that is coming unto glory? For if you are a Christian, if you believe that Christ has died for your sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose in victory over death and victory over your sin, then these are indeed true for you. If you do not believe in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, then I encourage you to listen to these promises and genuinely ask yourself if you want them to be true for you. And then I'd implore you to turn from your sin and embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you can walk in these truths as your own. 1 Peter 2.24, Christ, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew six thirty one to 33, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 4.7, be subject therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things are work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Philippians 4, 6-7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19, And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, like Paul, do you believe what God has said? Do his words fill you with hope? I encourage you to prayerfully examine your hearts and your lives in light of these things and live grounded in what God's word says about you, about your suffering, and about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, let's return to our text this morning and consider what happens next to Paul and his companions once they arrive on the island of Malta. Reading from verse 2, And the natives showed us extraordinary affection. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were waiting for him to soon swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, changing their minds, they began to say that he was a god. Isn't it interesting that these natives who were pagans who were unregenerate, isn't it interesting that they showed Paul and the 276 men extraordinary affection? There is an important theological point to see here in these pagan natives, namely that God has put his law, his truth, in the heart of every man. God has given every man a conscience, and so even the unsaved can do right things, even if they do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their Lord. Paul teaches this in Romans 2 when he says the following, For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, 
their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But it isn't enough to do just to do right things, is it? Isaiah tells, tells us all that all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And the Israelites made this same mistake, thinking that they could follow the law well enough to meet God's standard for righteousness and thus be saved. Paul speaks of this in Romans 10 when he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, the, for not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We cannot approach the perfect, sovereign, creator God in our own righteousness. It is worth as much as filthy rags. Instead, we need another righteousness. We need a better righteousness. We need perfect righteousness. And the only one who possesses such a righteousness is Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is that Jesus offers his righteousness to us if we would just believe in him as our Lord and Savior. Paul speaks of this in Romans 1 when speaking of the gospel. He says, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed, does not mean that it's made known merely as the standard, but that it's also made available to us, whose own righteousness is as filthy rags. Let me ask you, whose righteousness will you bring with you to judgment? Will you make the mistake of the Israelites and bring your own filthy rags? Or will you in humility accept the gift of the righteousness of God, made available to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I implore you, accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive his righteousness freely. For today is the day of salvation and this is the only way that you can be saved. And so as, the, as these natives of Malta were showing extraordinary hospitality to Paul, they started a fire and more likely a number of fires for everyone to get warm due to the cold and the rain. And our passage indicates that Paul began to collect firewood. Brothers and sisters, Paul was collecting firewood. I mean, think about that. The great apostle Paul, appointed by Jesus Christ himself as his primary witness to the Gentile world, was picking up firewood. Wait, shouldn't someone much less important be doing a job like this? Shouldn't someone who isn't as godly as Paul perform this kind of menial task? I mean, there were the natives. There were the 276 other men, and there was Luke. That's enough people to get the job done, right? Plenty of hands to make light work. Why does Paul need to bother? Well, let me just say that the reason Paul was picking up firewood is because he was first a true leader, and more importantly, a true servant. He had a servant's heart, and therefore there was no task too menial for him to do. There was no job that he would not do if it that that he would not do if it would be a blessing to those whom he was with. 
even as an apostle, and a real apostle, right? Not some self-appointed charlatan like we see so often these days. Paul, this true apostle, who was actually appointed by Christ, was picking up firewood because he knew that while they currently had a roaring fire going before them, if they did not have additional firewood, that fire would die down. And the men finding warmth from that fire would get cold again. It was as simple and practical as that. So here's the question. If we were in the same position, the same situation, the same circumstance as Paul, would we be picking up firewood? Is there a task that is too menial for you or I in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there things that you or I wouldn't stoop to in order to bless those around us? I can tell you that this was convicting for me. Would I be picking up firewood in this situation? Or would I let others do it while I kept warm close to the fire? What discomfort, what annoyance, what sacrifice, what displeasure, what hardship, trouble, or uneasiness is too much for us to bear for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm pretty sure that as things in our society move in the direction that they appear to be moving, that we'll have to put up with a lot more in order to love and bless one another. And we should be thinking of these things now so that when these hardships come to pass, we're not caught off guard. We here at Lakewood believe in something called every member ministry. This notion of every member ministry, every member ministry is taken straight out of Ephesians 4, where Paul says the following about the church. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined together, joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper measure working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here we see that this is a body in which every member, every part, every person is doing what God has gifted them to do what God has called them to do in service to the body at large. And notice the effect this has. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a good thing, right? That's what we want here at Lakewood. Let me ask you, are you one of the parts of this body that is using your gifts given by God to serve those around you? I believe this passage is telling us that every person here at Lakewood is specifically designed by God to serve here in this local body in some form or fashion. Let me just say that there are plenty of needs that we have here at Lakewood. And I encourage you that if you are not currently serving here to speak to myself or any one of the other elders, and we'd be happy to help you find something that you can do to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Lakewood. And so Paul was picking up firewood. Unbeknownst to him, he picked up a snake, specifically a viper, which is a very poisonous snake. And the viper was probably stiff like a stick of firewood due to the very cold and wet weather. But as we see in our text this morning, as Paul laid the sticks on the fire, the snake realized what was about to happen and fastened itself onto Paul's hand. This very poisonous snake bit Paul. Now, it is interesting to consider the reaction of the natives to all of this. Our text says, And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, 
They began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. The natives assumed that because Paul had been shipwrecked, and then because now the viper has bitten Paul, that Paul must have done some evil thing to deserve this snake bite. And as our text says, they said, justice has not allowed him to live. This word justice is a proper noun and should be capitalized in your Bible because it is a pagan personification of justice as a goddess. It is a reference to fate directing them. And while these natives believed in fate, we know that every event that is transpiring here is sovereignly ordained by God to take place for Paul's good and for God's glory. I just want to observe that it is a common assumption that people have that bad things happen to people because of some sort of sin or wrongdoing that they have committed. First and foremost, we know that in our text this morning, Paul is not a murderer, but the, the, the natives assumed he was. And there are other examples of this false notion of bad things happening because of some sin through Scripture. Consider Job. He was a man who suffered greatly through many troubling circumstances, and when his companions, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, came to counsel him, they said to him that he must have sinned against God in order to be going through such great suffering. But we know that was not the case. We know that God presented Job to Satan as an example of a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned from evil. And yet it was God who allowed Satan to test Job, and this was the cause of his suffering. We also see that the disciples had a similar misunderstanding about the reason why people suffer. Consider the following account from John chapter 9. Here we read in John chapter 9, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is speaking of Jesus. And, and Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. So the lesson is that there are different kinds of suffering and different reasons for suffering. Now it is true that sometimes we suffer hardship because the Father is disciplining us. Right? But this is not always the case and was not the case for Paul in our text this morning. Now our text continues in verse 5 saying, However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were waiting for him to soon swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, changing their minds, they began to say that he was a god. I'd like to take a moment and consider the fact that Paul did not deliberately pick up the snake. Some people will use this passage to claim that there is some sort of divine promise from God of protection on all of his people, that we are, in a sense, totally invincible. And it is true that our time, so to speak, is not up until God has appointed for us to die and go be with him. But let me just clarify how this should be understood in a practical sense. If you decide to pick up a viper because you believe that you are invincible until God's appointed time for you to die, then that is God's appointed time for you to die. <laughs> These are foolish notions that we should not entertain seriously. Instead, we should live each day trusting in the Lord's protection and provision, 
but also not testing the Lord. And so we see that Paul does not die. That Lady Justice does not have her way with this man, Paul, who according to the natives on Malta must have been a murderer. On the contrary, Paul lives. And so these natives determine instead that Paul couldn't be a murderer, but that he's actually a god. This isn't a new thing for Paul. He's been mistaken for a god before. For example, while at Lystra, remember in Acts 14, Paul healed a man uh, who had never walked. And the crowd responded by saying of Paul and Barnabas that the gods have become like men and have come down to us. I just think that it's interesting to note that a theology like that of these pagan natives on Malta, which is rooted in the wisdom of man and not founded on the word of God, such a theology, such a worldview is so fickle and is truly unable to discern that which has taken place right before their eyes. And this is such a contrast to Christianity. Paul says as much in Romans 12 when he exhorts the believers in Rome to not be conformed to this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and here's the reason why, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people with minds that are renewed in the word of God so that we can be a discerning people, so that we can be mature, so that we can know God's will in every situation, and so that we can know what is good, what is pleasing, and what is perfect. And now let's turn to verse 7 in our text this morning as we consider our second point in the outline, God's provision. Starting in verse 7, we read the following. Now, in the areas around that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying afflicted with fever and dysentery. And Paul, going to see him and having prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and being healed. They also bestowed on us many honors of respect, and when, we, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So now we are introduced to this man named Publius, who Luke describes as the leading man on the island. And we see that Publius welcomed Paul and the 276 men and entertained them courteously for three days. He had the same hospitality as the natives did earlier. And we learn that Publius' father was very ill. Luke explains that he was lying afflicted with fever and dysentery. Commentators suggest that a microbe found in goat's milk was often the cause of such fever on Malta, and this fever could last for months or even a few years. One preacher commented that Publius' father likely had cholera. Whatever the case was, he was a very, very sick man. And look at what Paul does. Luke tells us that Paul going to see him and having prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. And then word gets round that Publius' father, who has been very sick, was healed. And we see the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to Paul and being healed. Here we see Paul's courageous example to go to this very sick man, a man whose sickness was likely contagious Paul didn't stay at arm's length from Publius' father. 
No, he prayed and then laid his own hands on him, and Publius was healed. And Paul didn't stop there. He received all the sick and diseased on the whole island of Malta that came to him, and he healed them as well. Paul was not fearful of what might happen to him. Paul was not afraid of getting sick. On the contrary, he went to the sick. He prayed for the sick. He even laid his hands on the sick, and they were healed. Fear can can be a useful emotion, and I do think that it exists as a means of protection from immediate danger. Fright might actually be a better term for what I'm thinking of. Fright combined with adrenaline can equip us in a way to escape something that might otherwise harm us. But the Bible teaches us that we are not to have a spirit of fear, that we are not to be overcome and controlled by fear. And this is grounded in the great truth which is spoken throughout Scripture that God is with us. Paul speaks of this spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7 when he is encouraging Timothy to be faithful to his calling as a minister of Christ, when he is encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul says the following words to Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Something that I've learned over the last two years from this verse is that when we embrace a spirit of fear, which is contrary to what God has called us to, we lose our power because we stop trusting in Christ. We stop loving sacrificially because we're afraid for our own selves. And we don't have sound minds because our eyes are on the circumstances around us instead of focusing on on Christ and eternity. Whereas Paul... On the island of Malta, with the love of Christ, powerfully in Christ, and with all his faculties about him, ministered to the sick and loved them. May we be a people after this example of Paul and not give in to a spirit of fear, but instead be a people of power, a people of love, and a people of sound minds for the gospel. Because we are Christ's and because God is. Is with us. And so we see in verse 10 the fruit of Paul's courage to serve the sick and diseased on Malta. Luke tells us that they also bestowed on us many honors of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. When we trust the Lord for our safety and provision, God supplies all that we need in Christ as he did for Paul. Those whom Paul served, those whom Paul loved, bestowed on Paul. And the men that were with him, many honors of respect. Commentators tell us that the context implies that these honors of respect may well have included material gifts. And we also see that they supplied them with all that they needed for the remainder of the journey ahead to get to Rome. The point is not that we serve and love others with the expectation of receiving something in return, but instead that When we live without fear in the love of Christ in service to others, that Christ knows our needs, and when appropriate, according to his perfect will for our lives, he makes provision for us. Let's turn our attention to the final point in our outline, God's providence. Here, starting in verse 11, we see Paul setting sail again for the last time on his journey to Rome. 
Now at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and after a day when a south wind sprang up, on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brothers, when they heard about this, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. It appears from our text that Paul stayed on Malta for three months. And this makes sense since it was too dangerous to travel by ship until winter had passed. Commentators suggest that navigation would typically begin to resume when the west winds started to blow near the date of February 8th. Therefore, this is likely when they would have set sail. Interestingly, Luke notes the name of the ship as the twin brothers. And this is the only time in Acts that Luke documents a ship's specific name for us. So it must be important. The twin brothers were the mythological Greek gods Castor and Pollux, thought to guard the safety of sailors and are represented in the constellation Gemini. Apparently, it was said that anyone who saw the constellation Gemini during a storm would be brought good luck. And it might be this very reason that Luke mentions that twin brothers is the name of this ship because it was not these false Greek mythological gods that were protecting them. On the contrary, it was the one true and living God, Yahweh, that was with them. There was no luck involved in the safety that would come. Rather, it was God's providence to preserve Paul's safety to get him to Rome and fulfill the promise that Jesus had made to Paul in Acts 23. After Luke mentions the name of the ship that they were to take, he gives us a play-by-play of each step of the next part of their journey. There should be a map up here. Looking at verse 12, we read, After we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and after a day when a south wind sprang up, on the second day we came to Petoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. Notice briefly on the map in the section highlighted, we see Malta, where Paul and the 276 men spent the winter down there at the bottom. And as we just read in verses 12 and 13, they traveled on the ship twin brothers to Syracuse up in Sicily, where they stayed three days, and then they sailed from Syracuse to Regium, which is on the actual uh, country of Italy, and then on to Patoli, which is fairly near Rome, at which point some brothers who must have known about Paul coming to Rome met Paul and Luke, who was with Paul at Patoli, and invited them to stay with them for seven days. And then Luke says, We came to Rome, but they weren't in Rome just yet, right? They were close enough, though, right? One preacher observes this phrase, we came to Rome, expresses Luke's eagerness to reach Paul's goal city. They had not really arrived in Rome. However, Luke viewed Petoli as close enough to warrant this enthusiastic announcement of their arrival, even though Paul still had many miles to travel. Luke continues in verse 15, and the brothers, when they heard about us, 
came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And so some brothers from Rome heard that Paul was close by. And they traveled 33 miles south along the Appian Way to a place called the Three Inns, which was a common rest stop. And then a smaller group traveled another 10 miles south to actually meet Paul in the market of Appius. And our text says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Remember, Paul was a prisoner on his way to Rome to appeal to Caesar Nero. And so thinking about this, Paul, who has only really had Luke by his side thus far, encounters these Roman believers. Now, we mustn't forget that it was these very believers to whom Paul had previously written, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strengthened. That is, to be mutually encouraged, while among you, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Clearly expressing his deep desire to travel to them, to encourage and be encouraged by them. And now, here they are, standing before him. I can truly imagine that Paul would respond with thanks to God. And that seeing these believers whom he had desired to be with for so long, that Paul would indeed be filled with courage. And he'd be filled with courage to continue on the path that the Lord has laid before him. And Luke concludes his comments on Paul's arrival in Rome in verse 16 when he says, And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And so we see Luke's account in Acts of the spread of the gospel in the early church climax here in Paul's arrival to Rome. Rome was at that time the heart of the Gentile world. Luke has recorded for us in Acts how the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now it has gone to the ends of the earth. And next week, as we conclude our preaching on Acts, we'll hear about Paul's ministry in Rome. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul and for his example. Lord, we thank you that he was a true servant. We thank you for his courage. Lord, we pray that we would be like Paul in our own lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.